Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you are new to our church or newer, uh, my name is Dave and it is my privilege to serve as lead pastor at our church here. And I am also, as you can see, the naughtiest of the goats in our congregation. <clears throat> that, that role in the skit is closer to the truth about me, I think, than I care to admit. And so uh, it was humbling to have to do that in front of all of you. If you're just joining us, we are working our way through a series called Life-Changing Conversations. And the purpose of the series is twofold. One is, I really believe conversation is a dying art in our country. In our culture, I, th- I think people talk at each other, and they voyeuristically read and listen to each other's lives, but this back and forth where we're enriched by actually talking and hearing, receiving and giving, I think that's really a dying art in our society. And so one of the hopes I have is that as a result of this series, all of your conversations in life will be enriched. The ones at home, with family, with coworkers, in every conversation, in every relationship, you would experience something deeper. But I also have a second agenda, which is from the, the very earliest days of the Christian faith, from the days that Jesus walked the earth, people have found their way to him as a result of conversations. The truth is, I wasn't born knowing who Jesus was. I had no idea how the gospel worked. I made stuff up by myself. I I basically turned God into somebody I could live with. And I figured if there is a God, he's got to be like this, and he's got to be like that, and he's got to be like this. Otherwise, forget him. And I created God out of my own sensibility, and that's the God I thought I knew. And over the course of conversation this refining process, people began to share with me and gave me a chance to share back. And it was through conversation that I finally understood the truth to the extent that I own that truth now. It's, it's in me. And it wasn't something that was just shoved down my throat. I don't know where we get that language. When's the last time anyone actually was able to shove anything down your throat? Uh, we have such a strong gag reflex in America. I don't think that the accusation holds any longer in the church No one can shove anything down your throat. We hear, we receive, and we only swallow and keep down what we really can accept. And the truth is, I accepted Jesus Christ because someone told me over the course of years who he was. And so it's my hope that in our own lives, we will experience the joy of speaking about this Jesus and this good news of the gospel to other people. And that's the subject that I think is not so easy to think about or receive for most Christians. And so this morning, um, I want to look at the importance of learning to ask good questions. The importance of learning to ask good questions in the process of having life-changing conversations, both in the context of giving away our faith with others and also in every other conversation, in every other relationship, how important questions are. In the mid-1600s, the French philosopher Voltaire, at least that was his his pen name, he had a different name, which I can never remember, (laughs) but we'll just call him Voltaire. He said these words, judge a man by his questions rather than by his answers. 
And I think that's really profound. That you actually learn more about a person by listening to the questions they ask than the statements that they make. About 2,500 years before Voltaire, King Solomon said something along a similar vein. He said, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And really what he was saying is, the person who is wise got wise because he wanted wisdom. He wasn't content with what he already knew, but he was driven by the questions and the unseen things that he still wanted to dig up. He wanted more truth, more reality, and so the intelligent heart gains knowledge by pursuing it. And I, think of, I can think of no better way to pursue knowledge than to ask questions. When I was growing up in school, nobody told us there's no such thing as a stupid question. What we were taught was most of our questions are stupid. I mean, it was a different generation. You guys live in a much kinder, gentler, encouraging generation. I would ask stupid questions, and I would get ridiculed by my teacher. Weren't you listening? How could you ask something like that? Study harder. Do your homework. But as our kids grew up, I was hearing more and more and more, there really is no such thing as a stupid question. And I really believe that to be true in my heart. Because a good question is the exact opposite of stupid. It is saying, I don't want to remain ignorant. There's something I don't know, and I can't get it without asking. Last week, we looked at James's admonition that we should be very slow to speak and very quick to listen. But it begs the question, what are we listening to? And in most cases, what we're listening to is the sound of our own voice, and we're really not hearing what anybody else is saying. I think the key to unlock the words of others are good questions. And when you ask a powerful question and when you commit yourself to really listen, something profound will happen for both you and the person you've asked that question of. So let's dive into it this morning. I want to look at the importance of asking good questions. And I want to show you three things, three benefits of asking good questions. The first is that asking good questions invites revelation. Not the last book of the Bible with all those scary images and horsemen and angels of death, but revelation in the sense of the noun form of to reveal. To reveal. Let's look at that verse from Proverbs again. And here's what Solomon says. He says that intelligence or knowledge, really what he's talking about is wisdom, practical, fruit-bearing life knowledge, wisdom, that is gained not passively, but actively. And so much of life rises and falls with what we know and also, by extension, what we don't know. One of my recurring fantasies is I wish I could go back to high school knowing everything I know now. And I'm not talking about chemistry and math. I've, when I look at my kids' math, like I look at Noah's math and it looks like NASA stuff to me. I, I, I can no longer help even Elijah. Zoe, I can still help a little. Okay? <laughs> But Elijah knows more math than I do right now. He's an eighth grader. I'm not talking about wanting to go back to high school knowing physics, math, Spanish, all that. I'm talking about wanting to go back to high school knowing what I know about people, about myself, about how the world really works. I would rule the school if I could go back right now. I mean, think about it. But of course, I can't do that because when I'm there, I'm at the same level of dimness and ignorance that everybody else was because we're new. We're not brand new, but we're new. And in high school, 
still things are unfolding, the picture hasn't been revealed. I think of wisdom or knowledge as something like the way the, the old Polaroid pictures. Remember that? You would take a picture and you have no idea what it's going to look like and you'd shake it, the air would, re- and little by little, like a reverse ghost, rather than fading, the picture comes sharply into focus. Isn't that true? And so, do you remember the, does, do any of you kids know what that is? You have no idea. We used to actually take pictures on film, physical film, not digital everything. And that's one of the ways you could have the development right there. And little by little, the picture would come into focus. But in the early stages, you can only guess at what you're seeing. And that's the way it felt to me to be in high school, was I thought I knew how stuff worked, but man, I had no clue how things worked. But over time, I gained understanding. And here's the thing. There are some people who will only wait until knowledge is poured down and some of it dribbles into their ears and nostrils and, oh, man, I got some knowledge accidentally. There are people who get, like, um, residual secondhand knowledge and others who pursue it. And really, that seems to be the difference between those who gain wisdom and those who do not, is some people will only get as much wisdom as is forced upon them, and others will seek it with great intentionality. Solomon here, he says that wisdom cannot just be had by the passing of time, but that the kind of knowledge we need to become wiser is gotten through intentional pursuit, that the the intelligent heart acquires knowledge, it wants it, and that the wise ear seeks knowledge. It's interesting that he says that knowledge and wisdom come to us by way of our hearts and by our ears. And I, I think, among other things, one of the things it means is this. The wise heart wants wisdom. And what it means is it genuinely seeks information it doesn't have. It is bothered by its own ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't mean being stupid. I mean not knowing something. I'm one of those people that if I'm like... I have this rabid curiosity. It's not necessarily a noble thing. It's a disease. And Jeannie will tell you, like, I'll pull the car over. If I see something on a windshield or a bumper sticker, I'm like, what is that? And there's a URL and it's mysterious. I got to pull over and pull out my phone. Sometimes I don't even pull over. Sometimes it's, you know, red light. I can't not know what that is. It could have no consequence to my life, no lasting value, but the fact that someone knows something and I don't know it and I'm vaguely curious, I can't put that away. Any of you wired like me? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, you got to pull the car up and be like, what is that? www.whatonearth.com. i got to know. And after I know, 90% of the time I'm like, that's stupid. I'm stupid. But I can't not know. And what I'm finding out is there's some measure of that, that if Jesus gets a hold of it, he grows a human being. There are other people who just celebrate not knowing. I don't know. I love it that way. I don't, stop talking about all that fancy stuff. I don't know. There are some people you'll meet who love not knowing stuff. Just love it. They are so content with what they already know that they're good. And that person might pick up a little knowledge the way you pick up lint on a black sweater. But I don't know if that person has the best shot at becoming truly wise. When we make statements, we only recite what we already know. But when we ask questions, we invite new things we don't yet know. 
That's why we will always grow more by the questions we ask than by the statements we make. Now, I want you to hear that statement. It's very simple for me to say, but think about how that measures up to the way you relate to people and the way you talk to people. And I'm going to start here with parents and, and married people. I know not everybody fits that category, but let's start with you guys. Does that describe the way you verbally interact with your spouse and with your children? Do you ask more questions or do you shout more declarations? Do you, do you, in other words, which key on your typewriter is more worn out, the question mark or the period or the exclamation mark? I would just love it if some statistician could track one human life and just see how the proportions of those punctuation marks fall out. And for most people I know, their period and their exclamation mark would be worn to nubs, and the question mark would be almost brand new. People don't ask a lot of questions. And I think it's because we don't have this redemptive, holy curiosity to know more. And I'm not just talking about trivial facts. I think one of the greatest measures of our love for people and our spiritual maturity is how genuinely curious we are about other people. I don't know if you agree with that, but over 20 years of ministry in the same church, one of the things that I've learned is that you'll know the state of a person's heart by how genuinely curious they are about the hearts of other people. And if you are so absorbed in your own life, your own work, your own finances, your own schedule, your own family, that it's been a long, long time since you ever had a thought about another person, that you see the same faces at work every day and they're just background scenery. Oh, there's Bar, the receptionist, there's Mike, the other guy, and there's accountant, and here's the, and they're just background scenery. And you never once in the last year thought, what's your story, man? Who are you? What makes you tick? Why are you so grumpy? Why are you always smiling like you know a joke I don't know? What is your deal? If you don't have any curiosity about the other human beings on the planet with you. If you go to school every day and you hang out with the same friends, you go to church and you hang out with the same friends, and there's all these other people all around you, and you never even once think, huh, would my life be enriched if I got to know some people I don't know? It's a very, very telling thing about your heart. And so let me just say that one more time for you. You learn a lot about the true state of your heart by gauging whether you're genuinely curious about other people. I call that kind of curiosity holy curiosity. Because it's not just some voyeuristic curiosity like, I wonder how much money they make. Mm, I wonder where she got that sweater. And I'm not talking about that kind of curiosity. I mean truly, like you are another human being. I know your face but I don't know you. And the truth is, I'm wondering who you are. It's hard for me to see you in my peripheral week after week and have no idea what your story is. There's so much we don't know, but you will only gain as much of that wisdom as the questions that you're asking. And so I want to give you that, that challenge, that encouragement. Wear out the question mark on the keyboard of your life, okay? Learn to ask more questions because that's the key that unlocks more understanding. There's a second uh, aspect of asking good questions, a, a second value of it, and that is that asking good questions invites reflection. It invites reflection. How many of you have read the book of Job? 
Some of us read it only when we're going through a lot of junk ourselves. It's like the most comforting thing to read because this dude's more miserable than I've ever been. Thank God I'm not the worst, right? And it's helpful to read it because it's not just commiserating, but the way he processes his own hardship and grief, there's so much to learn from it. What I love is how honest the book of Job is. In fact, most scholars say that it probably is the very oldest book in the Bible. I know it's smack dab in the middle, but the Bible's not arranged chronologically, and it's probably the most ancient piece of Bible that we have. It's really a story as old as time. And the basic elements of the story are that we can know God, but that there's a jerk who doesn't want us to know him, and he will come after us with all guns blazing, and life is hard. You don't need a PhD to know all those statements are true. Life is hard. It's not that easy to know God. It sure is easier to lose him in the midst of all the junk. And so God allows the most horrific hardship to to befall Job because he wants to know, is Job with him only because life is good? And that should be challenging to us because when you ask most Christians, how are you and is God good? Those are really the same two questions. God is good when life is good. And God is kind of not here when life is not going well. That's just the way we are. And so he wanted to know, Job, do you love me and honor me and worship me only because you have an awesome life? Would you still see me the same way if life weren't so awesome? I'm sure every husband has had that thought once or twice. If I were broke and uglier than I am now, would you still be with me? Some of us are still wondering, hmm, not really sure, so I'll keep making that money. And keep brushing my teeth because I don't know. I think we all wonder in a relationship, why do you stay? Why are you still here? What exactly drives you to be with me? God allows Job to speak very freely through the book of Job. He allows him to express doubt, anger, futility, despair, And he allows Job's friends to spew on and on with their theories about why all this is happening. And they're boneheads. Some of us know exactly what that's like, that it's bad enough you're going through hard times, but then you realize every one of my friends is an idiot. And the things they're saying to try to help are making me feel worse. They're saying stuff like, Job, listen, I know you're generally a good guy on the outside, but surely you must have done something nasty. Just think hard because God doesn't do this to nice people. What did you do that you forgot about that made God angry with you? And they're asking him all these boneheaded questions. And all this time, God is silent. And he's just going, y'all just keep talking amongst yourselves. Go ahead. Just keep going. And he's letting them run free. But towards the end of the book, he pulls Job aside and he says these words. Brace yourself like a man. It's never good when God starts a sentence with that. <laughs> brace yourself. You know, that's a word that in, in the flight attendant says, brace, brace. You know, crash is coming. You're supposed to go like this. That's what he's saying. I'm going to hit you. Get ready. Do you guys ever see the, on YouTube, only men could come up with something this stupid. They have like, like, you know how they have arm wrestling tournaments? They have slap tournaments. Do you ever see this? Youth group guys, don't look it up because I don't want you to try to. It's so stupid. They full swing, slap each other as hard as they can. And one guy I saw got knocked unconscious. You can actually slap someone unconscious. Men do stuff like that. And before you get slapped, there's a moment when you just go, 
and you brace yourself. And here's what he's saying to him. Listen, Job, you've had all your time here to ask questions, to pontificate, to run theories. Brace yourself. Because it's my turn, and I've got a few questions for you, and you are going to answer me. And he's not saying it argumentatively or punitively. He's not saying, uh, brace yourself for the thrashing and the butt-kicking that is about to commence up in here. He's not using the questions like a form of attack, but what he's saying is, you've been doing all this thinking on your own, unguided by my spirit. But now I'm going to ask you some questions that will actually take all of your thoughts in a certain direction. I want you to really think now. You've been flailing about, but you haven't been thinking. And for all of your thinking and all of your flailing, you haven't found your way to the ultimate truth yet. So let me now ask you a series of questions that will drive you to where you need to be. Do you get that? In other words, God is using these questions that are to come in a way of guiding Job's thoughts to the place where they needed to be all along. I think it's interesting that for an omniscient God, meaning a God who knows everything, God is found in the Bible asking so many questions. And if you think about it, on God's keyboard, shouldn't the question mark be missing? In fact, shouldn't there just be exclamation marks? If I were God, all I'd do is yell in all caps at the world all day long. What is your problem? What is wrong with all of you? But instead, what you find is throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, an all-knowing God asks questions all the time. And you've got to pause and logically go, why does God ask any questions at all? Is it because if I don't tell him, he'll never know? Watch this, watch this. Um, Yeah, God, I gave offering last week. (laughs) And God's like, oh, good, good. It's not like God doesn't know, right? I, I didn't inhale. You can't fool God by making up stuff. And when he's asking questions, it's not because he's like, oh, what? I was, I've been wondering about you. Tell me what's going on. He never asks questions to fill in the blanks, at least not his blanks. It's the gap in our understanding that he's trying to fill. And that's why God asks questions. The mark of a good question is not just necessarily to make the other person defend themselves, but it is to have them reflect and reveal and arrive at a place that they need to be. God asks questions as a way of giving away the gift of reflecting. And that's the truth of the matter, is in our culture, thinking is a dying art, just like conversation is. There's a lot of stressing, there's a lot of obsessing, but there's not that much thinking. And I'm not saying that arrogantly, I'm just saying if there were a lot of true thinking going on, people would come up with better answers to simple questions. I hear people going, oh man, I've been thinking about it a lot. Then my next question is, how come what you ended up with is so small? You say you've been thinking about it for weeks, but you've got one fortune cookie length sentence of truth. How could that be the product of that much thinking? And even the fortune cookie you pulled out doesn't even seem remotely biblical, so I'm not sure what all the thinking, the curiosity of our thinking is producing for us. I think God asks good questions to teach us how to think. Because it's possible to do something you call thinking and do it furiously and not have it produce any good fruit. 
and I, I don't mean to poke fun, but sometimes you listen to um, younger kids on the phone, and there's so much talking, and there's so little actually being said. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just like so many books that are written today, so many pages, so few of those words worth reading. It's interesting that when Adam and Eve made a mess of everything in the Garden of Eden and God confronts them, he doesn't confront them with lots of exclamation marks. He confronts them with lots of question marks. I mean, that's profound if you think about it. Look, look at what, uh, what he asks. In Genesis 3, 8 to 13, this is what God coming into the room going, hey, the house is on fire and the kids were home alone. What the heck? The garden was perfect when I left you guys five minutes ago. What happened? He comes back to the garden. It's a mess. Everything's ruined. And this is God's confrontation. And in the midst of it, instead of yelling, he asks four questions. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Is that how, is that how we do it? He asks, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what is this that you have done? Now, here's the important thing about these four questions. There's two ways to ask that question. One way is just with a, you're asking a question, but really you're yelling a statement. And that's the truth of it. For most of us, our questions, and I'll use air quotes here, our questions are really accusations. Our questions are really drive-by shootings and character assassinations, aren't they? Let me address the parents one more time. And either you are a parent or you have a parent, but you'll be able to relate. Many parents ask questions like this, but here's how, if, if we're a mom or a dad walking into the house and the kids have messed up the universe, here's how we might have asked these same questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What is this that you have done? And you walk away. Because you don't care what they have to say. They're not real questions. They're just vomiting. You're just yelling. It sounds like a question, but it's not a question at all because there's nothing they can say that you want to hear. We do this in marriage. We do this in friendship. We all have bosses that have done this to us. Why, 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 why? I'm trying to tell you, but you don't even want to listen. Why would you do this? Why wouldn't you do that? Rhetorical questions can be powerfully used, but sometimes rhetorical questions are a horrible waste of breath. Why ask a question that you don't really care about the answer to? The truth is most of us, we're guilty of that, aren't we? Hey, I have kids too, so I know what that feels like when you just want to yell, but you're asking questions. It feels kind of soothing, but it doesn't grow them and it doesn't grow you. Nothing changes when you ask questions like that. What were you thinking? What is your problem? What if instead of yelling it, you actually ask the question, hey, what were you thinking? Why, why, why would you do that? I just want to know. I'm not going to agree with it probably. I won't like your answer or what it reveals about you and your IQ and your worldview and your morals. But I don't want to just presume I understand or just indict you with disdain as being stupid. I like to know what thought process launched the idea for you and your friends to have a youth group slap tournament, you know, <clears throat> or whatever. I, I don't know, just, you know, whatever. Like you, I want to know where the thought, the seed of thought came from because I, part of me getting to know you 
is to really ask you questions and then commit myself to hearing what you say back. That doesn't mean you've got to like what they say. It doesn't mean you've got to agree with it. But at the very least, if you've asked a question, you really ought to to think about whether you want to hear an answer or not. Don't be annoying and ask questions when you really mean to make a statement. When you ask a person a question, you're actually giving them a gift. Because if you ask a genuine question and then you commit yourself to being still and hearing, you, you know, when most of us ask a question, we answer the question through their voice, right? It's like a puppet. Uh, what were you thinking? I don't know, mom. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> and like, that's what we're thinking, right? Is we think, oh, I already know why you did it because you're dumb and I'm done with you. And we don't grow at all in that relationship. And the person feels attacked and on the defensive. There's nothing they can see about themselves because no one's given them a chance to say or discover anything about themselves either. When no one will listen to you, you don't even listen to yourself. Isn't that true? When no one will listen to you, you can't even get the word out so that you could hear just how dumb your words might actually sound because everyone's so busy attacking you, you're too busy defending yourself. But when we ask a question and really listen, not to punish, not to shame, not to trap or accuse, not to build a case against the person, not to establish a dominant position, but because I want for you to pause for a moment and process why you did that. Where are you right now? I'm in a garden paradise, Lord. Isn't that where you've always been? Yeah. Well, does it feel different being here now? Well, yeah. I'm where I've always been, but I'm not really where I've always been. Who told you you were naked? The same jerk who told us to eat that fruit. Now, come to think of it, he's not good for me. I know likey this guy. Every time I hang out with them, bad things happen to me. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I was hungry. It looks so good. But look at the whole garden. There are so many trees full of so much good fruit. Why didn't you eat any of that? Because that's the one you told me not to have, and then it made me really want it. Do you get what, and what is this you have done? I think I've betrayed you. I think I've ruined everything. I think I need rescue. If you ask a question and you give the gift of your listening ear and your gracious acceptance, what you're really giving away is the gift of somebody who's finally able to speak and hear their own words. They're able to actually think about what they're doing and not just be yelled at by you for every one of their failings and imperfections. A good question is an opportunity to reflect if the question is asked in the company of a trusted friend. Let me give you one last thing. And that is that asking good questions invites relationship. It invites relationship. Before the Apostle Paul was the most noteworthy figure of early Christianity, he was its greatest enemy. He was Saul, the chief persecutor and imprisoner of Christians. 
for whatever reason, Saul hated this new movement called the way. He hated those who followed Jesus. He saw them as one of the greatest threats to the spiritual and religious life of his people. And so with great zeal, he went out of his way to find and persecute those who followed Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the anti-missionary. He went on missions trips to imprison Christians and persecute them. And exactly what he was doing the day he met Jesus was he had gotten letters of commissioning from the the council of of, uh, of religious leaders, and he was on the road to Damascus to find him some Christians to persecute and to imprison. And as he was approaching the city of Damascus, Jesus himself intercepts Saul and appears to him in person. And as he does that, a great light comes down upon him, and Saul can hardly see. And what does Jesus do? If I were Jesus and I saw all the trouble Saul was causing me and my people and I saw him cowering under the bright light, I'd walk them just go, idiot, so stupid. Do you know how many people's lives you've ruined? Do you know how many kids are orphaned because of you? Do you know how much grief and terror and sadness you've brought upon people who only want to know and love me? What is your problem? I don't know if I could be calm in my confrontation of Saul. Thank God I am not God. None of you would be here if I were God. You'd be hiding in a cave. God is so different from us. And that's why we should never grow bored of him. If you become more like him, you will like yourself so much more. And everyone else will like you too. He's just so not like us. He walks into situations that would unravel us and he keeps his cool. And that's why people grow under him. That's why people change under him. That's why people get better under him. He asks Saul this question. Hey, Saul, stop wincing. Stop getting, I'm not going to kick you. Saul, that's why, I think that's why he said Saul twice. Because Saul, Saul just like, <laughs> he goes, Saul, hey, Seriously, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you hear the tone of that question? Why do you persecute me? It's, seriously, why do you persecute me? What's, What's the deal with that? What is your story? You are so bent on doing this. I get it. I see that fire in your belly, the look in your eyes. I see your commitment, but why? Where does it come from? Why is it so important to you to find my followers and put them away? What's the motivation here? What's driving you, Saul? I can stop you anytime I want. I mean, squash like a bug on the windshield, forgotten, move on. I could do that right now. But I'm going to ask you, what is this thing that's happening here? Why are you doing this? Why do you keep drawing on the walls with crayon when I've told you a thousand times not to do it? Why do you keep getting speeding tickets? Why haven't you hung the clock on the living room wall after two and a half years? Why, why, why? And we're actually asking, seriously, why? What's the story? And it reminds us that when we step into a person's life, we're stepping into a story that's already been happening. You don't know everyone the way you think you know them, not even the people closest to you. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got their reasons. 
They're not always good ones, but they're their reasons. People aren't arbitrary. They're not random. They do things because of a reason. And so often we talk at people without understanding anything of significance about what drives them. And that's why we could be near people for so long, even married to them, sharing the same bed with them, and still feel decades later, I don't really know you because I stopped trying to know you after I thought I had you figured out. I know you. You're like this, you're like this, you're like this, you're like this. Done. I've got you tidily cataloged, packaged away. Here's the problem. Every story keeps happening. Every story keeps unfolding. People evolve. Life changes. We change with it. And when you think you have someone figured out and you stop asking sincere questions, you will start to drift from that person without doubt. The people you think you know, you won't know years later if you stop asking questions and sitting still to listen to what they say. Now, I know some of you are frustrated because you ask lots of questions and your quiet partner will not say anything back. What's on your mind? Nothing. How's school today? Fine. And you're like, it's annoying. You want more, they're not giving you more, but be patient because if you stay at it, those questions will open the door to relationship. I don't believe that Jesus asked this very direct, pointed question to be aggressive, to repudiate and to crush Paul's spirit. I think he was asking the question to say, Saul, I see something in you. There's a fire in your belly I like, kiddo. When you set your mind to something, you kill it. You're one of those guys who doesn't use a little hammer. You use a sledgehammer, and I need guys like you. But what is the deal with you? You have so much zeal, and it's so misdirected. I think he was not asking the question to repudiate Paul. He was asking the question to redirect him. He wanted to ask a question that would make him realize, yeah, why am I so bent on this? Why am I so angry about this movement? Why do I hate it so much when I don't really understand it? And in the process of being questioned, Saul was led to reflection and repentance. And what it opened the door to was a relationship with Jesus Christ that became epic, historic. You can restore and you can flourish in a relationship just with the power of a good question and a commitment to listen to what the person shares. And can I just give you one practical application here? Start with the person you think you already know the best. And over the next month, make it a goal to ask at least one good question every week and listen to what they say. Some of the stuff you already know, it won't surprise you, but some of it, you might, you might be rocked by hearing the voice of someone who you thought you already had pegged. I know that that's scary and uncomfortable for some because you're already in a relationship that's strained and you're not sure you want to open yourself up to that kind of vulnerability. But I'm telling you, if you'll take the risk and ask the question and then listen, you might be amazed what comes of it. And I'll confess to you, there is one relationship in my life I felt so heavily pressed upon in my heart that I need to ask a good question and quietly and patiently listen to the answer. And I'm wrestling through whether I'm going to have the courage and faith to follow through on that. But God's doing a work on me too. And I want to challenge you not to just let a moment go by where you agree with the message and move on to something else. Every person has a story. And if you ask a good question and listen to the answer, they'll let you into that story. And it's an invitation to relationship.
Let me give you a couple quick life applications, something practical to keep in mind. And one is learn to ask open questions. Don't ask questions that are going to lead to a short conversation-killing one-word answer. Parents, don't ask your kids, how was school today? Okay? How was school today? Because I can guarantee you they'll give you one or two words. Bad. Okay. Well, you're the one who did it. You ask a dumb question. I mean, when you ask a kid, how was school today? What do you want them to say? Well, mother, first of all, it was a very satisfying educational foray. And no, I'm not going to say that. Just go, ah, it's school. What do you want me to say? I hate that I have to go. And as soon as I turn 18, I'm never going back. Ask instead, what's the best thing that happened to you at school today? What did you learn today that you didn't know yesterday? What is it about school you look most forward to? What do you like about your closest friends at school? Ask questions that invite the person to say more than one word. Because if you ask a bad question, you're going to get a bad answer, and it will kill the conversation dead on its feet. The best questions are open-ended questions that invite the person to fill in the blank that's standing right there. Here's a second one. Ask opinion questions. Don't get into a sparring match taking out your swords and poking each other. This is what I believe. What do you believe? But ask real opinions. Don't try to corner people into a logical sparring match. Instead, say, look, I want to know what drives you. What do you think about this subject? In fact, there are times when I do the risky thing on purpose. You know, they say the surest way to kill a conversation is to talk about religion or homosexuality or politics, right? Those three are the biggest conversation killers. Hey, did you vote for Obama or not? (laughs) You're not going to have a neutral talk there, okay? Uh, What do you think about gay marriage? (laughs) What do you think about the call that uh, Pete Carroll made in second down? the end of the Super Bowl. You change the subject right away. But sometimes I ask those questions because it stretches me. It's good to practice asking questions where you ask a person, what do you believe? And then put on your seatbelt and brace yourself for the heinous stuff that might come. Because sometimes what you hear will be so offensive to your spirit, so painfully wrong and boneheaded, And yet, that is really where they are, and you need to hear it before you can move on. You don't earn the right to speak into a person's life if you don't know what's already in that life. And the truth is, most of us are more worked up about what we're going to say than what they're actually telling us. Sometimes you find out the person already agrees with you, and you spent an hour, or rather you've wasted an hour, convincing them of things they already believe, and you'd know that if you just listened to what they're saying past the words. Ask them what they believe. So don't ask questions like, do you believe in heaven or hell? I don't know. <laughs> all right, I guess I'll see you later. I mean, <laughs> what is that all about? Like, if you ask a question like that, it's kind of leading. It sort of has an agenda. Instead, ask a question like this. What do you believe actually happens to us when we die? I mean, you know we're going to die. Clearly, as an adult, that must have crossed your mind at some point. Like, one day you're not going to breathe anymore. You've been there when people have died. You've seen it. You've gone to funerals. What do you truly believe in your heart happens to us? I'd I'd like to actually know the answer to that because I've only known one answer for so many decades. I'm genuinely curious what other people are walking through life believing. 
Are you willing to listen to what they say? What do you really believe about this? And the important thing is not to duel with them when they share, but listen to what they're saying because it'll tell you who they are. And let me just give you one last life application. I think it's a great idea to keep a question journal. For most of us, it's going to be on our phone, right? Because who carries paper anymore? Who even knows how to write? Okay, all right, some of us. But most of us will have a note app on our phone, and I would encourage you, if you've ever heard a great question that made you pause and really think, if some dude on an airplane asked you a question, you're like, that's an awesome question. What keeps you up at night? What do you most worry about? What is one thing you'll never regret doing? What's your favorite thing about living in Chicago? And it doesn't have to be a profound philosophical question, but if there ever was a question you were asked or that you asked somebody else that really engaged people in, neat, in a deep and meaningful conversation, that really crossed that bridge between strangers, write it down because someday you might need a good question to engage a person because you'll feel the Holy Spirit prompting you. Don't just sit on the plane next to this guy in silence. Talk to him. He's got something to say. How do I open that nut, Lord? How do I open up that can? You pull out your phone and some of those questions. I'll give you one. Uh, I saw a guy with a, one of those T-shirts on a plane that had all the mud on it. It says, get dirty, 5K. The dumbest question I could ask was, did you get that shirt running a 5K? Yeah. So you can read. Congratulations for yourself. So instead I asked the question, Hey, that shirt looks like it's got a story. Where'd you get it? What happened? Tell me about the story of getting that shirt. And he launched into it, and we had a good talk. See, if you can think of a better way to ask the same question, make note of it, because as you look over that question file, you're going to grow in the skill of asking the kind of questions that invite people to speak. And as you listen, God will grow you in your love for people, and in your knowledge and wisdom about the way the world is. And I think he will really use it to make you that voice in a person's life that helps lead them closer and closer to a life-changing, life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ the Savior. I want to ask you if you would bow with me in prayer. <clears throat> The one thing I, I would really not want to happen during this series is that you just, we nod together, we agree together. And then for years, we still stay hidden behind our high fences and just will not cross the room to talk to another person. I, I know that it's not that easy. I'm an extrovert, and I still find myself not always wanting to go there with people. My easiest fallback is, well, I'm on a plane ride for an hour. I'm not going to be this guy's bosom buddy. What can you accomplish in an hour? It's a cab ride. Get a hold of yourself. What are you going to do? Save someone's life? Change their destiny in a 10-minute cab ride? Let's just sit quietly and get where we're going. But I don't know. I mean, there are people I've run across in a crowded movie theater whose face and mannerism and behavior I've never forgotten. I don't know why. It just made a mark on me. I don't know the full story, but I can't ignore something they said or something they did in front of me. It haunts me. There's a cab driver I met in London when I was there with my daughter, Jordan. 
the two of us will never forget that man as long as we live. We shared 30 minutes of our lives with him. He messed us up, man. I still think about him from time to time. I still pray for him. I don't know what can be accomplished in a half hour, but I know that I can make sure nothing happens in a half hour just by staying behind my fences, keeping my mouth and my ears and my heart tightly shut. I want to invite you to venture out, even if it's just one time in the next year. And don't do it just to do it, because I think God will tell you when it's time. The Holy Spirit of God, and maybe you don't flow in this, in this stream, but let me tell you, sometimes you know how to recognize it. You can't explain why, but there's just this internal nudging, like this is not someone you just walk away from, say something. Do something. You feel it. Your heart is shaking. Your pulse is going up. You don't know why you're so agitated or why it's going to feel so wrong to just walk away. But you do. That's the, the prompting of God's Spirit so much of the time. The next time you feel that and God has given you that gift, that nudge, follow Him. Take a risk. I'm given the series in the hope that you will be at least equipped with insights, perspectives, a few basic skills, so that once you cross that bridge, you can do something, but you got to cross the bridge. And I want to invite you to do it, whether you're introverted or extroverted, shy or outgoing. I think one thing that unites us together is we have the capacity to love people. That's why we do it, to love. Will you cross the bridge because of love? Can we just pray this then for ourselves? God, would you do something in my heart that makes me the kind of person who crosses that bridge to other people? Give me one life-changing conversation this year that will mark me forever. Let's pray that right now in faith. Let's ask God to do that work. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.